Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Monish Rath. Uh, this is a program that we've been doing for coming close to seven years. I think this, uh, actually, August will be our seven-year anniversary. And what we do is we present developments in the field of occupational safety and health law, and we try and summarize or outline those developments in about 30 minutes, and we do this program about every 30 days. Thus, the name of the OSHA 3030. For those of you who have been participating for a long time, we are grateful for your returning loyalty to the OSHA 3030 community. And for those of you who are new to the OSHA 3030 program today for the first time, welcome. New members are a critical part of the lifeblood of the OSHA 3030 and its future. And for that reason, I will ask that although the registration fee is complimentary to friends, clients, and family of the Keller and Heckman community. Uh, the only thing we ask for in exchange is when you get a an invitation to the next OSHA 3030 that you forward it on to three to five people within your organization and at other organizations that are responsible either as safety and health professionals, human resources professionals, industrial hygienists, or uh, in-house counsel responsible for occupational safety and health. So with that, uh, let me just add a few more notes. Uh, I said this is the OSHA 3030 with Monish Rath. My name is Monish Rath. I'm an attorney here at Keller and Heckman, and in my 25 years of practice, I've been with Keller and Heckman for coming up on 20 years almost. And I'm joined by someone who makes those numbers seem small. My dear friend and colleague, Larry Halperin. Larry, welcome to the OSHA 3030. Thank you, Manish. Pleasure to be here with oh, you. Well, I'm grateful to have you here, and particularly uh, because I think we've got a great topic today. But before we get into today's topic, let me say that all of the other topics that we have covered over the past almost seven years are libraried on our website for your easy review. They are located at khlaw.com, our website, and then you can just search on, on the OSHA 3030 materials or go straight to khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. So our topic today, uh, OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, has issued a request for information relating to the lockout tagout standard or LOTO. Uh, so I think for the first thing we ought to do, Larry, today is talk about the, just provide some background on the lockout tagout standard, just to make sure that everyone is caught up uh, before we keep progress from there. Uh, we'll talk about some relevant case law and uh, exceptions to the standard that have evolved over the years uh, in which the lockout tagout standard has been effective. And, and then we'll talk about this recent development that OSHA has published a request for information uh, under the lockout tagout standard, which is the opening salvo for uh, commencing renewed rulemaking efforts. Anytime OSHA begins uh, a new rulemaking initiative, it often begins with a request for information from the affected regulated community. And that's what we have here. And uh, we'll talk about what kind of impact the a, a revised standard may have. And finally, as we always do, we'll leave you with a practical discussion, uh, uh, some takeaway items about what employers should do in light of this new development, the request for information. So with that said, why don't we start, Larry, with a little bit of background on the lockout-tagout standard. I think it's safe to say that 
the lockout tagout the lockout tagout standard is one that uh, is not only complicated to begin with, but it's the complications related to the standard vary from process to process and from piece of equipment to piece of equipment. Uh, to begin with, I'll say that the the primary objective of the lockout tagout standard is to establish requirements for the control of potentially hazardous energy when uh, when operating machinery and when performing servicing or maintenance of a machine or equipment such that an employee may be in a zone of danger. Uh, so this would affect any uh, employee who's in the zone of danger and the procedures required for uh, protecting or minimizing the hazards associated with unexpected energization or re-energization of that equipment uh, while the employee is performing that work. Uh, the request for information that OSHA just published intends to or anticipates revisions to the standard because I think the key language that we're discussing today in the standard is that the standard establishes requirements for the control of hazardous energy when servicing or main, uh, performing maintenance on machines and equipment when the unexpected energization or startup of a machine or equipment uh, is possible and could harm employees. And it's that unexpected energization or re-energization or startup of a machine that OSHA is seems to have its eyes on and seems to uh, believe needs to be readdressed, particularly in light of cases that have evolved uh, since the, the implementation of the standard uh, originally. So the request for information essentially asks, in broad strokes, for two uh, issues to be addressed by the affected stakeholders, by the regulated community. First is that the lockout, the lockout tagout standard requires that all sources of energy be controlled during servicing and maintenance of machines and equipment using an energy isolating device or EID. Let me add to this, Manish. We put these two paragraphs in quotes because these are essentially assertions made by OSHA as to what the standard requires that do not accurately reflect the current law. The current law turns on unexpected Therefore, if you have a control circuit system that's adequately reliable and prevents someone from being exposed to unexpected energization or startup, then the standard doesn't even apply. So it's unclear to us why it's written this way. There was a standards improvement project for... Or SIPS 4. Right, SIP 4, during which OSHA proposed to remove the word unexpected from the standard. It was strongly opposed by, I believe, the entire business community. Uh, we filed comments and requested a hearing, knowing the hearing would have to take place during the Trump administration. And I have a feeling OMB got involved and said, oh, so you're going to have to do this another way, because certainly you can't take the word unexpected out without first fixing the standard to recognize the use of control circuits or you shut down the U.S. business community. So these two assertions do not accurately reflect the law. You might say they would reflect some version of OSHA's interpretation of the law of the word unexpected that had actually been removed in the SIP4 rulemaking, which didn't happen. So why they left these statements in there, I don't know. These are, that's right, thank you, Larry, for clarifying. These are essentially the premises that OSHA asserts, debatable premises that OSHA asserts, 
to form the basis for why it's seeking a request for information. And furthermore, when it says that it's looking to change the standard to allow control circuits potentially in a way that won't put a further burden on the business community, that's only under the assumption that unexpected had been removed. When you talk about the fact that the word unexpected is still there, the reality of this rulemaking is potentially a huge economic cost to the entire manufacturing sector to accommodate what OSHA might consider reliably effective control circuitry, and we'll get into that later in the discussion. Well, with that said, let's keep going. And I'm grateful to you for making that clarification because that's a really important point that forms the premise of OSHA's request for information. Uh, so, so going back to the basics of lockout tagout, th- uh, as it currently stands and has always stood, there are noted exceptions and there's an exemption from the standard. Uh, and we'll cover each of these in turn, but some of the exceptions that we'll talk about are the minor, uh, are, are the exception for minor servicing activities, a well-established, well-known exception to the lockout, to the scope of applicability of the lockout, tagout standard. Uh, there's an exception for testing and positioning activities, for testing and positioning of equipment. And I think that there's always a exception that's read in that uh, would cover instances where compliance is infeasible or presents a greater hazard. And that, frankly, although it's read into the standard as it would be for, for uh, OSHA standard generally, uh, is an area that I think clearly calls for greater, greater clarification so that employers can, can uh, achieve greater confidence in, in the methods that they're using. And then there's an exception where, uh, that OSHA has acknowledged for uh, measures that are taken that prevent or eliminate exposure to hazardous energy, and there's case law that's flown from, that's, that has flowed from the lockout-tagout standard uh, where measures have been taken by employers that prevent or eliminate hazardous exposure to unexpected energization, right. startup or release of stored energy, and we'll talk about one of the landmark cases, the right. Delco. I think the point to make is the exemption, as OSHA reads it, is much narrower than the exemption that's actually provided in the case law. So we just keep that theme in mind as we go through this process. Yeah, OSHA was unhappy with the case law and has decided uh, to just re- continue reading a narrower approach than the case law. So, so let's talk about the first one, the minor servicing exception. Uh, an employer may rely on the minor servicing exception to the lockout-tagout standard in instances where the employer is performing work, first of all, during normal production operations, and that the task, the minor servicing task, is a routine, repetitive task that's integral to the use of the equipment, and third, that the employer has uh, implemented alternative measures that provide effective protection. In addition, I'll note that the minor servicing activities exception is only applicable when you're talking about one employee uh, who has exclusive control over the potential re-energization of the machine. At the very least, that has what has always been the case as far as how far OSHA has recognized use of the minor servicing exception. I think that it's important to point out for this discussion particularly what is not considered minor servicing. Yeah. So there's a West Vaco case, which is an unfortunate case the way it came out, but basically, according to the established case law, things like setup activities, which are performed between production runs, 
are not considered minor servicing activity because they're not performed during normal production, but considered preparation for normal production. And obviously, those are the activities where you test and position and at some points, and then at other points, in theory, you could lock out. Um, another example is cleaning at the end of a shift. I've seen lots of operations where somebody is cleaning a conveyor belt or some other piece of equipment while the conveyor belt is turning or the equipment is running, standing back, shooting with a hose, whatever it is, foaming it, rather than advancing the piece of equipment, locking it out, spraying it, unlocking it, starting it up, advancing it again, and locking it out, and that's an absurd process. But if OSHA were to take the word unexpected, out of this standard, and you read the standard the way OSHA has it, that would be your option for cleaning that piece of equipment. Right. And Larry, you, you say absurd, but to clarify what's, what we would both mean by that, that is nevertheless the standing position of the agency. And as you and I both know, what we do really, in addition to counseling clients and, and um, advocating on behalf of industry before the agency during rulemaking is representing employers in federal and state plan states in citation contests. And you and I both recollect a case that we handled only a few years ago where an employee was using exactly that method for cleaning a conveyor belt, uh, that they weren't doing it properly. They were leaving the conveyor belt running and cleaning it out. And uh, sadly, that employee uh, lost a hand to mm -hmm. the conveyor belt. And that was one of the more, certainly one of the more upsetting uh, cases that I've worked on in recent years. And the, the, but the process reality of, is you need to be able to use tools, maybe draw a line right, on the floor, do something, but do something that allows you to clean while something's running safely. And rather than locking it out, advancing it, locking it out, advancing, which is going to take too much time, drive the employee crazy, and quite possibly won't even allow you to properly clean the, the equipment. And that's why I wanted to clarify. So thank you, Larry. I think that's exactly right. It's the alternative measures that provide effective protection mm -hmm. that is an elemental requirement to minor servicing. Uh, but I think there, when you're talking about after the shift, I should also point out that that OSHA is taking the position is not during normal production operations because right. that's post-shift. And so those are critical points. So, so some examples that OSHA does recognize as fitting the minor servicing exemption would be changing a, changing a drill bit or other uh, pieces of equipment on the machinery uh, or clearing jams or minor cleaning, minor lubricating or adjusting operations while the machine might be operating using alternative effective protection. Uh, a few other points I think that we need to talk about when talking about minor servicing. The, when we talk about permissible alternative protection measures, control circuits that have control logic, such as interlocking or uh, other equivalent measures, are considered permissible alternative protection measures for minor servicing. OSHA has not recognized control circuitry as alternative protective measures outside of the minor servicing mm -hmm. exception. Right. Now, we're skipping around, and I apologize for that, but just keep in mind that the RFI talked about when control circuits could be used to control hazardous energy. So one risk is that we provide OSHA with all this information, and then they say, okay, ISO 13849 says you should have control level, whatever it is, safety protection level, such and such, for this piece of equipment, and then decides that alternative effects for protection for purposes of minor servicing should be at that same level of protection 
rather than just simply a control circuit with control logic, which is the current standard. Now, if there's not enough reliability, OSHA might require someone to check those circuits on a per shift or per day basis, whatever else it is. But you can see what happens if they develop information on what control circuit reliability is and then try to apply it retroactively to minor servicing, which theoretically could happen because they don't even have to change the language of the standard. They could just reinterpret what they mean by effective protection, which is why it's critical for people to, to comment on these issues now rather than waiting for a notice proposed rulemaking when it could be too late. Yeah, critical. So that's minor servicing. Let's talk about the next one, the testing and positioning exception. OSHA recognizes, and this is a longstanding exception, that an employer may uh, engage in testing and positioning of equipment without going through the full lockout-tagout procedures when it cannot perform testing or positioning activities uh, without power to the, the piece of equipment. In other words, the power is the thing that repositions the equipment, and there's a lot of large equipment that fit that example. And again, here again, this is only applicable as an exception when there are alternative measures to provide effective protection. But going back to the shortcoming, the most important part about this is it's been interpreted to mean only when you technically need the power. So that means if you don't need the power for one portion of a setup task and you do need it for the next portion, you'd be continuously locking and unlocking the machinery, and it would be absurd. Locking it out during the portions that need power. Don't that don't need power right. because the exception would no longer apply, and then you don't lock it out to reposition something when it does need the power to reposition it, right. and then continuing to go back and forth to do Which that. Which is absurd. Right. And so, so, so the point is, I guess the standard was outdated by at least 10 or 15 years when it was adopted because it was based on <laughs> 1970s technology, and here we are in 2019, and we're trying to fix it, and it's time for people to realize the first time around Nobody really participated effectively on the industry side, and we were rescued from a disaster because at the 11th hour, OMB was pushed by one particular interest that found out about the language of the standard and said, there's no minor servicing exemption in here at all in the first place, and they added one at the last minute, which is why OSHA had a lot of trouble interpreting what it meant because there was no discussion in the preamble about it because it hadn't been brought into the standard until the last minute. And the GM Delco case we're going to talk about now basically is the court rescuing us from the fact that there was no alternative to lockout the way OSHA was interpreting the standard. Right. GM Delco had developed a, a very elaborate safety protection system so that when it's a very large machine was being serviced, that there were methods by which an employee knew and could uh, uh, depart from the zone of hazard in time before reenergization led to any potential hazards. Right. So there was a, there was a manufacturing cell at a GM plant. An individual opened an interlock gate, actually changed a bearing, which was not a minor servicing activity, but he propped the gate open with his tool cart. So nobody was really going to come along and pull the tool cart away and close it. And without the gate closed, they never could have started the machine. But the focus wasn't on that. The focus of the litigation was even if somebody were to take away the tool cart and close the gate, which thereby completing the circuit, which could be avoided by having the gate locked open, um, at that situation, then it would still take a sequence of somewhere close to 10 buttons being pushed with delays and sounds and signals to the employee that the machine was going to start back up. And therefore, the Review Commission and the Sixth Circuit 
both read the language of unexpected and said it's in the standard eight times, it must mean something, it's italicized twice, so therefore we're going to interpret the language the way it's written and seems to be indicating that if the person has enough warning to get out of the piece of equipment, there's no potential for unexpected energization. Now the safer approach, in many cases, it would be to just lock the, some sort of control circuit. There are also, though, many situations I've seen with huge long conveyor belts that go on for hundreds of feet and nobody can realistically run around all those places and make sure nobody's there. And so unless we're going to put up light curtains for an entire facility, the answer is you push the button with the delay and give people time to, to recognize that the conveyor belt's going to start up. And they shouldn't be working on the conveyor belt unless they've got a, some control over it exclusively in their hands in the first place. But the bottom line is there's always going to be a need for some sort of warning device. I, I can't see a situation which we're going to eliminate that from, from the design of equipment. So this case has stood, the GM Delco case has stood as, as sort of the watershed on this question of unexpected energization for the many years since it was issued. And, uh, well, it's 1996, so we're getting on um, 23 years. Long time. And OSHA still hasn't recognized how to bring it into its enforcement process. If you read the, the compliance directive, they'll talk about make-ready activities being okay, but set up activities not being okay without clearly distinguishing between them in terms of what's minor servicing and what's not minor servicing. They talk about the guarding can be an effective alternative to lockout, but never clarify how that guarding is going to be effective and what's permissible. And as time goes on and the B11 standards develop more detailed requirements for what guarding is supposed to include, the potentials that OSHA go along and adopt them too if we're not careful and halt them and before you know it, we have requirements that existing machinery just can't meet and we can't, in my mind, basically make all existing equipment unusable and require it all be retrofitted. It just doesn't make any sense. So here we are with the, the, the request for information. Theoretically, the question is, OSHA's asking is, one, when can we rely on control circuits in place of lockout? Um, I think the position that people should think about is that lockout is truly an administrative control, not an engineering control, that relies both on the individual recognizing the need to lockout and then locking it out properly, which requires that they have the knowledge and the training that nobody in has changed the procedure, the equipment, that some procedure that exists is adequate. So when you take all those human elements into account, the reality is that as a general rule, a properly designed reliable control circuit is going to be more reliable than an individual locking out in terms of controlling hazardous energy. The exception is probably for electrical shock hazards, but they're not covered by the standard anyhow. They're covered by 19, you know, the, the subchapter S electrical standards. And then the other thing to keep in mind is when you do lock out and you're constantly pulling on an electrical disconnect, there's potential for an electric arc hazard, especially if for somebody pulls the disconnect under a load instead of first shutting down the machinery, which is again another human issue. So to the extent you design it properly, I think 
The evidence is that control circuit designs as are better means of providing protection to an employee than locking out in just about every situation. I think a very persuasive argument could be made for that, Larry, to anyone who has experienced either on the shop floor uh, trying to administer safety and health rules or, as, as you know, in my perspective, defending in citation contests. You and I, we've seen it all. Uh, locks with uh, a lock on top of that uh, is appropriate. So we've seen locks with multiple people having the key instead of a lock on top of a lock. Uh, we've seen we've seen people just don't lock it on or they'll just hang the hasp of the lock on so it appears as if it's been locked. Uh, people forgetting their keys. Uh, all sorts of methods by which employees take shortcuts in uh, derogation of their own safety. And so I think your your argument that engineering controls, and, and it's well-established in the well-established hierarchy of controls, that engineering controls are to be favored over these kinds of administrative controls because administrative controls rely on imperfect compliance by employees. And clearly, reliable control circuits are a form of engineering controls. And so, right. so I well, think yeah, those of us who have, right. who have experienced it are persuaded by that. Right. And as far as the second question, I think we should clarify that. There's no question that lockout, tagout is going to apply to robotics. The question is how it should apply and whether there's any special aspects of robotics because people work side by side with robots or actually wear robots that potentially the lockout tagout standard needs some special provisions to deal with those issues. Yeah, I thought that that was odd at first too because I don't think anyone should debate that unexpected energization associated with robotics would fit the lockout tagout standard as a general precept. And as you say, what OSHA is seeking a request for information on is how to go about uh, creating any special language that would give guidance to the regulated community that might uh, engage in the use of robotics in manufacturing or other uses. So with that said, they've issued this request for public, uh, public request for information in the Federal Register in, uh, in May, late May, May 20th, and the comments or information is due to the agency by August 19th, and I think that's coming up really quick. Larry, I know that you're drafting comments mm -hmm. for a number of industries, and you know better than anyone how involved that process is. It's a process of a cycle of feedback from the regulated community to give data, and industry data is the most persuasive, I think, uh, as to their experiences and the challenges and the solutions that they're looking at. And so I think that that's the, the kind of process that you, listening to the Social 3030, have to consider. If you are a representative of a corporation, then make sure that your corporation's view, data, experience, and solutions are supplied to your trade association or industry group. And if you're at an industry group, I think you've got to begin early that process of soliciting it. So in my, my recommendation would be that everybody go back and look every single activity in which you rely on control circuits rather than energy isolation while performing a task regardless of whether you call it setup or minor servicing or standard maintenance and servicing I think you'd be surprised what you find but you need to know what you're doing now so that you can properly explain it to the agency so the agency doesn't go off making the wrong assumptions like it did last time and ignoring the fact that there was even something called minor servicing um, so that you present information about what you're currently doing and ideally you'd present some information about how many minutes, for example, or 
hours, whatever the term is, it takes to perform a task if you use the control circuit features you're currently using and how long it would take if OSHA required you to lock out. And when you show the difference in hours and then the economic difference on that, OSHA will understand what happens if it were tried to change this standard and impose lockout when it's not appropriate. But, and coupled with that, Larry, because I think you're 100% right, that's the data that is persuasive, but only if coupled with an explanation of the alternative effective measures that are taken during the process where you, you're you relying on alternative methods like controlled circuitry. Right. Now, on the, on the other hand, with respect to existing equipment, I think people have to make the presentation that if you push the stop button and the machine actually stops, the stop button worked. And so if you lock it or you lock an e-stop so that it can't be started, that's not going to come up to the level of protection that's in uh, an ISO 13849, but it does protect the employee, reduces the risk substantially down to something reasonable, and under those circumstances, with respect to existing equipment, some sort of grandfathering is necessary rather than OSHA coming along and saying, okay, we'll accept control circuits, but you have to perform to this performance level that's in this newest standard. Well, that equipment wasn't designed to that standard, and the justification for retrofitting all of it I, I don't believe exists. I think the, the circuits are adequately reliable to protect people on an interim basis until that equipment is expired or is renovated for some reason. Okay, so the question is, um, OSHA is going to ask how you determine whether equipment's reliable, and most likely they're going to hear from organizations like the B11 Standards Group uh, or one of the other, you know, the ISO group, and they're going to say, well, you should have a piece of equipment that comes up to the safety integrity level or this performance level. And for a new piece of equipment, with a phase-in period, because it's going to have to be designed if it isn't already that way, um, that's fine. But there needs to be some sort of consideration for grandfathering. As far as the ANSI Z244.1 2016 standard, it has a lot of positive features, but unfortunately, it focuses on lockout being the primary or default measure and alternative measures as if there's something lesser in terms of protective level, instead of looking at it from a risk standpoint and saying engineering controls are preferable. If you look at the flow chart in there, it seems to indicate that engineering controls are preferable, but then the language of the standard and the text itself is a little bit ambiguous, but seems to say if you can lock out, lock out, which doesn't make sense if the risk assessment justifies doing something else. The other, the other concern I have, and then I, I'll, then I'll think we should move on. But the the equipment that we're talking about, uh, j just to do a risk assessment is extremely lengthy in time, and as you note, the most of the or all of the equipment or almost all of the equipment in the workforce today is legacy and was manufactured with safety measures in mind that predate uh, the kind of uh, requirements that these individual standards would have uh, contemplated. And I think it's also safe to say the employer is in not in, is not the party in the best uh, position to verify or determine whether a control circuit system 
meets the requirements of the revised lotto standard, lockout tagout standard. It really seems to me it would be the manufacturer who should be able to certify that. And maybe as an analog to, for example, the hazard communication standard, that the employer should be permitted to rely upon certification mm -hmm. by the manufacturer. Well, you make an excellent point. That's why I'm getting back to the idea of grandfathering. Right. If OSHA comes along and says you've got to reach this level and the equipment wasn't built to that level, the next thing you do is you have some, you have to hire somebody to do a risk assessment to see if somehow the risk assessor is going to come to the conclusion the employee is safely protected. And there was an Alro Steel case, it was an example where OSHA cited an employer for not locking out the saw before changing the blades, and the employer ended up bringing in a journeyman electrician and an electronics engineer, or electrical engineer, to prove to OSHA that there was no potential for unexpected energization. That took two experts in a trial. Uh, if you were to go outside and hire somebody to do a risk assessment on the basis that OSHA would say, okay, you got to come up to this level of performance, you got to show that you're at that level of performance, and if the equipment manufacturer can't do it by providing information that shows that the components are tried and true and all the other things and the equipment's designed with redundancy and cross-monitoring and all that other stuff, then you've got to go out and hire a consultant to do it. And it potentially five, ten, or $15,000 piece for a piece of equipment for every piece of equipment in a plant, totally impractical. Indeed, when Nucor Steel sought a variance from OSHA based on demonstrated evidence that's analogous to what you're describing, OSHA took two years to review the evidence and approve a variance for Nucor Steel's lockout-tagout uh, at one site for one task, just as you described. Mm -hmm. And so there's the perfect example of your point. Well, then, of course, there's the cost uh, problems, as you've described, for, for retrofitting existing equipment or getting the outside consultants. Yeah, so just let, let's be clear on that one point right there. Currently, the standard applies where there's unexpected energization, startup, or release of stored energy. If OSHA removes the word unexpected, then it applies to every single maintenance and servicing activity, and it would be hard to argue there's an exemption. You can try to make an argument to the ALJ or the court that... Um, machine guarding prevents any exposure to the hazardous energy, but if OSHA revises the standard and puts some language in the preamble that precludes that and says the only choice is to lock out, they'll eliminate that possibility. So industry needs to really pay attention to this now and not wait for a notice of proposed rulemaking, which could be disastrous. Which brings us around to our last topic of discussion for today, which is what employers should do. Uh, and for that, I hearken our listeners back to a comment, Larry, you and I were making earlier that I think uh, it's important as a beginning step for employers to survey each piece of equipment and the tasks they perform uh, at, at this moment, currently under the current regulatory system, to figure out how they are complying with the standard and particularly with regards to minor servicing, positioning, testing, startup, uh, takedown procedures and to submit information uh, through individually or through your industry group no later than August 19th. Uh, I think it's really critical that some of the issues that you address include the uh, possibility that OSHA is contemplating removing the word unexpected from the lockout-tagout standard and 
what happens when you do so and how does it affect the use of control uh, circuit circuitry or other alternative effective mm -hmm. measures and try and provide that uh, information either again through your industry group or individually to OSHA's individually filed comments. And if for some reason you can't get it in by August 19th, I would say get in some basic principles and then follow up with some additional details of if it takes that long to survey equipment and get the date on the economic impact, but OSHA needs to hear about the economic impact. I think that's critical and, and for the next maybe another 23 years we'll be hearing about it from our clients in industry about the revised standard and so as Larry you say it's important to get this right. And you also have to keep in mind that this change is not going to happen in this administration. Just assume it will be happening in a democratic administration for example where they're not quite um, keyed to the same interests of protecting economic efficiency and focus may be somewhat different. So with that said, Larry, you have the last word today. And uh, if anyone's interested in more OSHA news, you can, between OSHA 3030 episodes, you can catch it on Twitter at Rathmonish. This program is rebroadcast as a podcast. Uh, probably within a day, this episode will be up on your podcast. So please subscribe to it. Uh, you can also uh, link in with our LinkedIn pages. Larry Halpern has one. So do all of my colleagues in the OSHA practice group, as well as the Keller and Heckman Workplace Safety and Health page on LinkedIn. Uh, about the podcast, let me say that uh, it's available on whatever device you're using on your podcast app. If you just type in OSHA 3030, it'll come up. But it's really important to make sure that it comes up, that when you listen to this, you like or rate the podcast so that it is more easily searchable for others. So please like or rate the podcast OSHA 3030 when you listen to it. Uh, our next OSHA 3030 episode will be August 21. That's Wednesday, always Wednesday, at 1 p.m. Eastern, always at 1 p.m. Eastern. And you can find out more about it on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA3030, which is also the launching URL for all of our prior episodes. We have sister programs, Keller and Heckman's Tosca3030 and Reach3030. Those will be broadcast on August 14th at 1 p.m., so stay tuned for those. And if you want information about all three of those, you can simply go to the page for the OSHA3030, and you can make sure you register for it and let people in, in the registration page uh, let us know that you want to be registered for the others as well. Uh, on behalf of my colleague, Larry Halper, and Larry, thank you very much for joining us. I'll say that when it comes to lockout, tagout, uh, if another attorney were trying a case against you, I think that we'd have to create different weight classes, uh, especially for you, because, uh, because this is a subject that I don't know anyone else who knows as thoroughly. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And on behalf of Larry Halpern and myself, Manish Rath, thank you all for listening in to today's OSHA 3030. And until next month, stay safe.